0: Hello, James Kenny here, and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, The Evolution of the Irish from Biblical Times. This is episode number 30, and it's about the leaders who brought Ireland into the 20th century, men like John Redmond, W.T. Cosgrave, John Dillon, Arthur Griffith, and Eamon de Valera. I hope you like this and that you will share with others on social media. In any event, please continue to follow and like. Thank you. John Edward Redmond 1856 to 1918, was an Irish nationalist politician, barrister, and MP in the House of Commons of the United Kingdom. He was best known as leader of the Moderate Irish Parliamentary Party, or the IPP. From 1900 until his death in 1918, he was also leader of the parliamentary organisation, the Irish National Volunteers. He was born into a prominent Catholic family at Bally Trent House, Kilrain, County Wexford. Several relatives were politicians. He took over control of the minority IPP faction, loyal to Charles Stuart Parnell, when that leader died in 1891. Redmond was a conciliatory politician who achieved the two main objectives of his political life, party unity and in September 1914, the passing of the Government of Ireland Act 1914. The Act granted limited self-government to Ireland within the United Kingdom. However, implementation of Home Rule was suspended by the outbreak of the First World War. Redmond called on the national volunteers to join Irish regiments of the new British Army and support the British and Allied war effort to restore the freedom of small nations on the European continent, thereby to also ensure the implementation of Home Rule after a war that was expected to be of short duration. However, after the Easter Rising of 1916, Irish public opinion shifted in favour of militant republicanism and full Irish independence, so his party, the IPP, lost its dominance in Irish politics. Redmond requested the British War Office to allow the formation of a separate Irish Brigade, as had been done for the Ulster Volunteers. But Britain was suspicious of Redmond. They suspected that his plan was that post-war, the Irish Brigade and National Volunteers would provide the basis of an Irish Army capable of enforcing Home Rule on reluctant Ulster Unionists. Eventually, he was granted the gesture of the 16th Irish Division, which, with the exception of its Irish General William Hickey, at first had mostly English officers, unlike the Ulster Division, which had its own reserve militia officers, since most of the experienced officers in Ireland had already been posted to the 10th Irish Division, and most Irish recruits enlisting in the new army lacked the military training to act as officers. Redmond's own son, William Redmond, enlisted, as did his own brother, Major Willie Redmond MP, despite being aged over 50 years. They belonged to a group of five Irish MPs who enlisted. The others were J.L. Esmond, Stephen Gwynne, and D.D. D. Sheehan, as well as former MP Tom Kettle. Redmond was, and is still criticized, for having encouraged so many Irish to fight in the First World War. However, the Irish historian J.J. J. Lee wrote, Redmond could have tactically done nothing other than support the British war campaign. Nobody committed to Irish unity could have behaved other than Redmond did at the time. Otherwise, there would be no chance whatever of a united Ireland, in which Redmond passionately believed. On the 3rd of May 1916, after three of the Easter Rising leaders had been executed, that is, Padraig Pearce, Thomas MacDonagh, and Tom Clarke, Redmond said in the House of Commons, This outbreak happily seems to be over. It has been dealt with firmness, which was not only right, but it was the duty of the government to deal with it. However, he urged the government not to show undue hardship or severity to the great masses of those who are implicated in the rising. Redmond's plea, and John Dillon's, that the rebels be treated leniently, were ignored. When Prime Minister Asquith attempted to introduce Home Rule in July 1916, David Lyde George, then Minister for Munitions, was sent to Dublin to offer this to the leaders of the IPP, that is, Redmond and Dillon. The scheme revolved around partition, officially a temporary arrangement, as understood by Redmond. Lloyd George, however, gave the Ulster leader Edward Carson a written guarantee that Ulster would not be forced in. His tactic was to see that neither side would find out before a compromise was implemented. A modified act of 1914 had been drawn up by the cabinet on the 17th of June 1916. The act had Two amendments enforced by Unionists on the 19th of July. Permanent exclusion of Ulster and a reduction of Ireland's representation in the Commons. Lloyd George informed Redmond of this on the 22nd of July 1916 and Redmond accused the government of treachery. This was decisive to the future fortunes of the Home Rule movement. The debacle of the 22nd of July finished the Constitutional Party overthrew Redmond's power and left him utterly demoralised. It simultaneously discredited the politics of consent and created the space for radical alternatives. Redmond, after 1916, was increasingly eclipsed by health, the rise of Sinn Féin and the growing dominance of Dillon within the IPP. An operation in March 1918 to remove an intestinal obstruction appeared to progress well at first, but then he suffered heart failure. He died a few hours later at the London Nursing Home on the 6th of March 1918. After a funeral service in Westminster Cathedral, his remains were interred as requested in the family vault at the Old Knights Templars Chapel Yard of St. John's Cemetery, Wexford Town. Amongst his own people, rather than in the traditional burial place for Irish statesmen and heroes in Glasnevin Cemetery. Edmund was succeeded in the party leadership by John Dillon and spared the experience of further political setbacks when after the German Spring Offensive of April 1918 Britain caught in a desperate war of attrition attempted to introduce conscription in Ireland linked with the implementation of Home Rule. The Irish Nationalists, led by Dillon, walked out of the House of Commons and returned to Ireland to join in the widespread resistance and protests during the resulting conscription crisis. The crisis boosted Sinn Féin so that in the December general election it won the vast majority of seats, leaving the Nationalist party with only six seats. In January 1919 a unilateral declaration of independence by the provisional Sinn Féin, first Dahl, proclaimed an Irish Republic, later abolished in 1921 after the Anglo-Irish War, under the terms of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which agreed on the partition of Ireland and established the Irish Free State with its Parliament as Dáil Éireann. John Dillon, 1851-1927, to was born in Blackrock, Dublin, a son of the former young Irelander John Blake Dillon, 1814 to 1866. Following the premature death of both his parents, he was partly raised by his father's niece, Anne Dean. He was educated at Trinity College Dublin and at the Catholic University of Louvain in Belgium. He afterwards studied medicine at the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin, then ceased active involvement in medicine after he joined Isaac Butt's Home Rule League in 1873 coming to notice in 1879 when he attacked Butts' weak parliamentary handling of Irish home rule. He became a leading land reform agitator as member of the original committee of the Irish National Land League, spearheading the policy of boycotting advocated by Michael Davitt, with whom he was a close friend. He entered the Parliament in 1880 as member for County Tipperary and was at first an ardent supporter of Charles Stuart Parnell. He travelled to the United States with Parnell on a fundraising mission for the Land League. On his return he denounced William Gladstone's Land Law Ireland Act 1881 as achieving nothing for small farmers. His views on agrarian reform and on home rule led him to be branded an extremist which resulted in his arrest from May until August 1881 under the Irish Coercion Act. With the outbreak of the First World War, Dillon accepted Redmond's decision to follow Britain's support of the Allied war effort, but he abstained from recruiting for the Irish divisions. The 1916 Rising took the Irish party by surprise. He intervened with Lloyd George to halt the 90 sentences of execution pronounced under martial law by General Maxwell after he declared the rebellion treason in time of war. He attacked the government in the House of Commons and declared that the rebels were wrong but had fought a clean fight. The secret trials and executions had changed public opinion into sympathy for the rebels. He was involved in May 1916 with Ly George's futile attempt to implement Home Rule after the Rising which failed in July on the issue of the exclusion, or not, of Ulster. He declined a nomination to the Irish Convention on Home Rule in 1917. After Redmond's death on the 6th of March 1918, Dillon returned to Ireland to take up the party leadership. When the Allied armies on the Western Front were hit and thrown into a temporary severe retreat by the German Spring Offensive, which decimated the 10th and 16th Irish Divisions, the British government attempted, a month later in panic, to extend conscription to Ireland, which Dillon opposed with tenacity, and in protest withdrew all Irish members from the House of Commons. The attempt to impose conscription, jointly linked with implementing Home Rule, disgusted the wider Irish public, and resulted in an immediate swing of support to Sinn Fein, which precipitated their election landslide after the war. One of his six children was James Matthew Dillon, nineteen oh two to nineteen eighty six, a prominent Irish politician and leader of the Irish Centre Party, and of Finna Gael, nineteen fifty seven to nineteen sixty six. He was also Minister for Agriculture. W.T. Cosgrove was born at 174 James's Street, Dublin, on the 6th of June, 1880. He was educated at the Christian Brothers of Malahide Road, Marino, Dublin, and joined his father's licensed vintner business on leaving school. He first became politically active when he attended the first Sinn Féin Convention in 1905. He was elected to Dublin Corporation in 1909 until 1922, and joined the Irish Volunteers in 1913. He never joined the Irish Republican Brotherhood because he didn't believe in secret societies. He played an active role in the Easter Rising of 1916, serving under Éamon Cant as a captain at the South Dublin Union. He was sentenced to death after the surrender, but this was commuted to penal servitude for life, and he was interred at Frangock, Wales, while in prison. He won a seat for Sinn Féin in the Kilkenny City by-election of August 1917 and was released under the amnesty of 1917. After his victory, he made a speech on the balcony of the courthouse. In September 1917, he and Michael Collins addressed a crowd in Dunbar in County Mead, urging people to join the Irish volunteers. But as the treasurer of Sinn Féin was re-arrested, and held in prison until 1919. Cosgrave again won an Irish seat at the 1918 general election, this time for Kilkenny North, although he and many other Sinn Féin MPs were still in prison at the time. On his release, he became Minister for Local Government in the First Dáil Éireann. As in accordance with their party's manifesto, they refused to go to Westminster and instead formed the First Dáil, in which Cosgrave took his seat after he was released from prison in 1919. W.T. Cosgrove supported the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921, and when the tragic deaths of Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins occurred, he became chairman of the Provisional Government and then president of the Executive Council or Prime Minister of the new Irish Free State, which position he held until 1932, when his government was defeated at the general election in his time in government he had established a secure parliamentary democracy. He retired from government and politics in 1944 and passed away in Dublin on the 16th of November 1965. The sudden death of Arthur Griffith on the 12th of August 1922 was sad and unexpected. He was born in Dublin's Dominic Street on the 31st of March 1871. He served his time to the printing business as a compositor. At the age of 26, he emigrated to South Africa, where he edited an English weekly newspaper in the Transvaal. He later became employed in gold mining. Returning to Dublin, he founded a weekly newspaper in association with William Rooney. He formed the National Council in 1903, which became Sinn Féin in 1905. He launched his new publication of the same name, from which the parents Sinn Féin party came into being, and he became president in 1911, which he yielded to Éamon de Valera in 1917. When Dáil Éireann met in January 1919, he became Minister for Home Affairs and also Vice-President. He led the delegation to meet Lloyd George and the British representatives in negotiating the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921. When they returned to Dáil Éireann, and it was discovered that an oath of allegiance to the British monarch was required, there were scenes of booing and clapping and angry cries from those not in favour. When a vote was taken, the negotiators had won by a slender margin of seven votes. Éamon de Valera and his followers stormed out of the Doll chamber in anger. Arthur Griffith was then elected president of the Dáil and of the Republic of Ireland, soon to be replaced by the Irish Free State. When the Anglo-Irish Treaty was accepted by the electorate in the general election of June 1922, civil war broke out in a short time after, and the country was once again plunged into the horrors of another war. When his Spanish father died in New York in 1885, the young child of two and a half years, Edward de Valera, was accepted by his Irish maternal grandmother into her cottage home near the village of Brewery in County Limerick. He attended the National School in Brewery and CBS Charleville, County Cork. He attended Blackrock College Dublin, where he played rugby. He also played rugby at Rockwell College and may have had a trial for the Munster rugby team around 1905. At the end of his first year at Blackrock College, he was student of the year. He also won further scholarships and exhibitions and in 1903 was appointed teacher of mathematics at Rockwell College, County Tipperary. It was here that de Valera was first given the nickname Dev by a teaching colleague named Tom O'Donnell. In 1904, he graduated in mathematics from the Royal University of Ireland. He then studied for a year at Trinity College, Dublin, but owing to the necessity of earning a living, did not proceed further and returned to teaching teaching. This time to Belvedere College in 1906 he secured a post as a teacher of mathematics at Carriesfort Teachers Training College in Blackrock Dublin his applications for professorships in colleges of the National University of Ireland were unsuccessful but he obtained a part-time appointment at St Patrick's College Maynooth and also taught mathematics at various Dublin schools including Castleknock College 1910 to 1911, under the name Edward de Valera, and also Belvedere College. As a keen Irish speaker, de Valera became an activist for the Irish language. In 1908, he joined the Archcrave of Conran the, Gaelica, the Gaelic League, where he met Sinead Flanagan, a teacher by profession and four years his senior. They were married on the 8th of January 1910 at St. Paul's Church, Arn Quay, Dublin. While he was already involved in the Gaelic Revival, de Valera's involvement in the political revolution began on the 25th of November 1913, when he joined the Irish Volunteers. The organisation was formed to oppose the Ulster Volunteers and ensure the enactment of the Irish Parliamentary Party's Third Home Rule Act, won by its leader, John Redmond. After the outbreak of World War I in August 1914, De Valera rose to the ranks, and it was not long before he was elected captain of the Donnybrook branch. Preparations were pushed ahead for an armed revolt, and he was made commandant of the 3rd Battalion and adjutant of the Dublin Brigade. He took part in the Hoth Gunrunning. He was sworn into the outbound IRB by Thomas McDonagh, which secretly controlled the central executive of the Volunteers. He opposed secret societies, but this was the only way he could be guaranteed full information on plans for the Rising. On the 24th of April, 1916, the Easter Rising began. Forces commanded by de Valera occupied Bolands Mill on Grand Canal Street in Dublin. His chief task was to cover the southeastern approaches to the city. After a week of fighting, the order came from Patrick Pierce to surrender. De Valera was court-martialed, convicted and sentenced to death, but the sentence was immediately commuted to penal servitude for life. De Valera was among a few Republican leaders the British did not execute. It has been argued that his life was saved by four facts. First, he was one of the last to surrender, and he was held in a different prison from the other leaders. Thus, his execution was delayed by practicalities. Second, the US consulate in Dublin made representations before his trial. That is, he was actually a United States citizen. And if so, how would the United States react to the execution of one of its citizens while the full legal situation was clarified? The UK was trying to bring the US into the war in Europe at that time and the Irish-American vote was important in U.S. politics. Third, when Lieutenant General Sir John Maxwell reviewed his case, he said, Who is he? I haven't heard of him before. I wonder, would he be likely to make trouble in the future? On being told that de Valera was unimportant, he commuted the court-martial's death sentence to life imprisonment. De Valera had no Fenian family, or personal background, and his MI5 file in 1916 was very slim, detailing only his open membership in the Irish Volunteers. Fourth, by the time de Valera was court-martialed on the 8th of May, political pressure was being brought to bear on Maxwell to halt the executions. Maxwell had already told British Prime Minister Asquith that only two more were to be executed. Sean McDermott and James Connolly, although they were court-martialed the day after de Valera. His late trial representations made by the American consulate, his lack of finian background and political pressure all combined to save his life, though had he been tried a week earlier he would probably have been shot. After imprisonment in Dartmoor, Maidstone and Lewes prisons, de Valera and his comrades were released under an amnesty in June 1917. On the 10th of July 1917, he was elected as the Member of Parliament for East Clare, the constituency which he represented until 1959, in a by-election caused by the death of the previous incumbent, Willie Redmond, brother of the Irish party leader, John Redmond who had died fighting in World War I. In the 1918 general election, he was elected both for that seat and Mayo East. But because most other Irish rebellion leaders were dead, in 1917, he was elected president of Sinn Féin. This party became the political vehicle through which the survivors of the Easter Rising channeled their Republican ethos and objectives. The previous president of Sinn Féin was Arthur Griffith. In May 1918, as the British sought to discredit de Valera's party and its military arm, the Irish Republican Army, the politician and 72 other leading Irish nationalists were arrested on allegations of conspiring with Germany. Some were sent to jail in Usk in Manmouthshire in Wales, while others, including de Valera, were sent off to Lincoln Prison. Lincoln Prison, an imposing building to the east, of the London city centre opened in 1872, and in its 46 year history, there had not been a single escape. Fearing a delegation to the US was about to tell the Americans that Ireland would be satisfied to remain partly under British control, De Valera was desperate to break out. Having spotted the door in the exercise yard, De Valera's next step was to find a key. His Catholic background had led him to act as server in the prison chapel, where he spotted the chaplain's set of keys. Waiting until his back was turned, the prisoner made an impression of the key using a wedge of wax he had collected from the chapel candles. The next problem De Valera and his fellow revolutionaries faced was how to get it, the key, to the IRA. With their letters scrutinized by prison guards, they came up with a ploy to send the dimensions on a postcard. A fellow prisoner, Sean Milroy, was put to the task and drew a cartoon of a drunk man trying to fit a large key into a tiny keyhole on what appeared to be a harmless Christmas card. The proofreaders were duped. The image sent to their associates was, in fact, a copy of the impression taken by De Valera. On the outside, a key was cut to the dimensions on the card and smuggled into the prison inside a cake. According to a statement given 30 years later by conspirator Liam McMahon, it was taken to the jail by a man called Finton Murphy. McMahon said in the statement, he said he was a commercial traveler and somebody in Manchester had asked him to bring this cake. He was taken inside. The head warder was called, who brought a very thin knife and started prodding the cake. Finton was in agony over the thing as to what would happen in the event of the knife touching the key. Anyway, he never contacted the key and the cake was put in. The plot failed, however, as the key did not fit the lock. De Valera, who realised the wax must have shrunk before the drawing was made, later wrote, as I examined the joy of having got the key, it was qualified by a feeling that it was too small. A second cartoon was dispatched, this time with a key impression disguised at the centre of an ornate Celtic pattern, and a second key was smuggled into the prison inside another cake. When that failed, yet another was baked, an oblong fruit cake, McMahon recalled, this time containing a blank key and a set of files so it could be shaped to fit the lock. The blank was given to fellow prisoner Pat the Lockery who had been able to examine a prison lock after managing to take it apart using a contraband screwdriver. With that extra knowledge, it was he who was able to fashion a master key, capable of unlocking any door in the jail, and of winning de Valera his freedom. At about 7.40pm on the 3rd of February 1919, de Valera, Milroy and a third man, Sean McGarry, used the key cut by de Lockery to open their cell doors and lock them behind them. Slipping out into the dark and misty exercise yard, they made their way to the gate. On the other side, top-ranking Republicans Michael Collins and Harry Boland were among those waiting for them. Collins had also had a key cut, but when he tried to open the gate from the outside, it snapped in the lock. Fearing their look might have run out, de Valera slotted his key in from the other side, poked out Collins' broken key, turned the lock, and the three men slipped through as the group made their escape from the prison they encountered some convalescing soldiers loitering with their girlfriends outside a nearby hospital but managed to stroll past without arousing suspicion after a short walk they arrived at the adam and eve pub where a taxi was waiting to whisk the men onto worksop in nottinghamshire by the time their escape was discovered at about 9:30 p.m. the men had taken another taxi from worksop to Sheffield, where a car was waiting to take them to a safe house in Manchester. During his incarceration, de Valera's Sinn Féin party had swept the boards at the 1918 general election, winning 73 of the 105 Irish seats, with de Valera, despite being behind bars, winning both in Clare East and Mayo East. But party members refused to take their seats in Westminster. And on the twenty first of january nineteen nineteen, assembled at the mansion house in Dublin to form an Irish parliament known as Doll Éireann. Following his escape, Valera returned to Ireland, where at the April meeting of the Doll, he was named president. In June 1919, Eamon De Valera arrived in the United States for what was to be an 18-month visit. He had recently escaped from Lincoln Jail in England in sensational fashion. A few months later, he was a stowaway aboard the SS Lapland from Liverpool, bound for America. De Valera's plan was to secure recognition for the emerging Irish nation, tap into the huge Irish-American community for funds, and to pressurise the US government to take a stance on Irish independence. Playing on his mind was the upcoming Versailles Conference, which began on the 18th of January 1919 and ended in Lausanne, in July 1923, where the nascent League of Nations was preparing to guarantee existing international borders, a provision that would imply Ireland remaining within the United Kingdom. Britain had reluctantly consented to the attendance of separate Dominion delegations, but the British managed to rebuff attempts by the envoys of the newly proclaimed Irish Republic to put its case to the conference for self-determination, diplomatic recognition and membership of the proposed League of Nations. The Irish Envoy's final demand for recognition in a letter to Clemenceau, the Chairman, was not answered. Britain planned to legislate for two Irish Home Rule States without Dominion status and accordingly passed the Government of Ireland Act 1920. Irish nationalists were generally unpopular with the Allies in 1919 because of their anti-war stance during the conscription crisis of 1918. De Valera also had a challenge in winning over President Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat who was less than sympathetic to Ireland's cause. De Valera's interest in America was of course personal. He was born in New York in 1882 and his US citizenship was one of the reasons he was spared execution after the 1916 Rising. At first, Dev kept a low profile in America, though he was greeted by Harry Bolden and others when he docked in New York. He first went to Philadelphia and stayed with Joseph McGarity, the Tyrone-born leader of the Clan Nagale, and a well-known figure in Irish America. He also quietly paid a visit to his mother in Rochester, upstate New York. De Valera's first major engagement was on the 23rd of June 1919 when he was unveiled to the American public at a press conference in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. Crowds thronged the streets around the hotel and De Valera proclaimed, I am in America as the official head of the republic established by the will of the Irish people in accordance with the principle of self-determination. He then embarked upon a tour across America. Vast crowds turned out to see the self-proclaimed President of the Irish Republic. In Boston, an estimated crowd of 70,000 people heard him talk in Fenway Park. In San Francisco, he unveiled a statue of the Irish revolutionary hero, Robert Emmett in Golden Gate Park. Later in the year, he held a huge rally in Philadelphia, where he was welcomed by the mayor at Independence Hall. He also visited smaller towns and cities across the United States, and his trip garnered huge press coverage, an invaluable boon for his campaign to heighten awareness of the Irish issue in America. But difficulties soon emerged during his visit. De Valera became embroiled in a bitter split among Irish Americans. He found himself at odds with Judge Daniel Cahalan, and John Devoy, central figures in the Friends of Irish Freedom Association. Part of the dispute centred around money. De Valera had settled on the idea for a bond sale as a way of raising money. Investors would be given bond certificates that would be exchangeable for bonds of the Irish Republic once it got international recognition. But Cahillan and Devoy, who had already raised thousands of dollars through the Friends of Irish Freedom Group, were opposed concerned about the scheme's legality for one. De Valera's claim in an interview that the Irish-British relations could be analogous to the relationship between Cuba and America also enraged the and devoy camp who accused him of surrendering the idea of full Irish sovereignty. De Valera's increasingly acrimonious relationship with Callahan and DeVoy spilled over into the 1920 Republican and Democratic conventions. Against the advice of Cahillan and Devoy, de Valera advanced a resolution about Irish independence, which was rejected 12 to 1 at the Republican convention in June of that year. A rival resolution by Cahillan squeezed through, but ultimately was overturned similarly he failed to secure the inclusion of the irish issue in the democratic party's policy platform during the democratic convention in san francisco de valera left the united states in december 1920 with mixed results though he had raised millions of dollars through the bond sale he had made little progress in co-opting official america to ireland's cause much as division was to characterise the next chapter of his political career in Ireland. De Valera's sojourn in America was to leave Irish America more divided than it had ever been. By the time of his death in August 1975, aged 92, he had been elected Taoiseach, Prime Minister, three times and served as President of Ireland from 1959 until 1973. More than 200,000 people lined the streets of Dublin for his funeral, taking the opportunity to honour a man who helped free them from British rule. They
1: sailed their boat. Fears. They put their roots down and they prospered and fought their battles through the years. Many more tribes began to follow.